Welcome to Bone, Stone, and Obsidian. I am Robert Aducci, and we have some changes today. We are back after a long hiatus, but we finally returned to this oasis. Unfortunately, Wayne didn't make it with me through the last silt storm. But no, Rain is really fine, uh, but he had to say goodbye to the podcast to focus on other things. And initially, I was looking to get a series of co-hosts, but uh, I really needed the dedication and encouragement of a dedicated co-host. So with that being said, a change is upon us, a change more pivotal than the death of Kalak, a new Sorcerer King arises. Welcome the new co-host of Bonestone and Obsidian, Jesse Heinig. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you, Robert. I'm overjoyed to be with you. Yeah, so many of you will recognize Jesse from prior episodes where he was a guest, but I used my considerable powers of the way to make it permanent. I think some telepathy was involved. I think so. So this episode, we are uh, very excited to say that we have a guest with us today. We have Matt Forbeck. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Robert. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you for joining us. So we are going to talk with Matt about his product, his Dark Sun product, Mind Lords of the Last Sea. But Matt, before we get to that, why don't you tell us uh, a bit of how you got into the industry, what you've been doing, and uh, kind of your recent projects? Okay, well, that's a lot of stuff to cover, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how do I get into the industry? I started out as a kid playing Dungeons and Dragons. I grew up in southern Wisconsin, and I could often tell people if I had grown up in L.A., I'd have gotten into film. If I'd grown up in New York City, I would have gotten into traditional publishing. Uh, you know, if I'd grown up on the streets of Chicago, I'd have gotten into all, all sorts of other trouble. But I grew up in southern Wisconsin. <laughs> and um, because of that, that meant I got into Dungeons and Dragons, right? Because TSR Hobbies, which published Dungeons and Dragons, was literally a 40-minute drive up from my house. So uh, I got to go to a lot of different gaming conventions when I was a kid. And uh, I also ended up, uh, when I was about 16 years old, I was playtesting games for Paysetter Games in uh, Delavan, Wisconsin, which is created by a whole bunch of XTSR designers, including one of the creators of Dark Sun, which was Troy Denning, actually. So that's one of the ways I got to know Troy. Uh, I knew him through Gen Con before that. And we had a great time uh, playtesting games in the evening like that, uh, like Chill and Wabbit's Wampage, Wabbit's Revenge. There was a game they had called Sandman that uh, was a puzzle game that if you figured out who you were playing in the game, which was a mystery because your memories erased in between, then you would get $10,000, and it's apparently sealed away in a safe someplace still to this very day. Although I get to play one of the second edition, uh, not edition, really, but they had a second box set that was going to come out, and I got to play test that, and it never actually came out. So theoretically, I have more knowledge about this, but that was 30-some years ago. So all that knowledge <laughs> has been drained out my ears at this point. <laughs> so yeah, I, I ended up, yeah, I had my own booth at Gen Con when I was 17 years old. I had a little mini magazine, a zine we'd call it nowadays called the quill and scroll that i think we went for a whole two issues <laughs> and it was it was a general gaming magazine covered all sorts of stuff uh, i ended up interviewing uh the guy who was behind uh bothered about dungeons and dragons and uh mm. interviewing jim ward over at tsr and all this kind of stuff and i lost all the money i put into it right which was like a thousand dollars in my college fund at the time oh, wow. yeah but it was still the best tuition money i ever spent right <laughs> uh, just ended up being, I learned more doing that and made more contacts doing that than anything else I ever did in my life. Mm -hmm. After I got out of college, I ended up going to work for Games Workshop for uh, about six months on a student work visa. And while I was there, I worked on a whole bunch of different things, Warhammer, for, Warhammer 40,000, a couple issues of White Dwarf. I also was the editor and developer for uh, Deathwing and Gene Stealer, which were the only two supplements for first edition Space Hulk. 
uh, which were just fantastic fun. I really enjoyed working on that with those guys. And I made some of my best friends of life there. I lived in Nottingham for uh, just the six months, but knew a lot of those guys. Still to this day, we keep up with each other. And then they offered me a full-time job at the end of that, but I decided I wanted to come back and be with my girlfriend at the time rather than rot away in merry old England forever. <laughs> I'd probably still be working at Games Workshop otherwise. And uh, so I came back to be with her, and that worked out really well because she is now my wife of 28 years and the mother of our five children. So pretty happy with how that came out. Yeah, um, as well as it possibly could. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's the that's the idea. Right. That's the dream. So <laughs> after I got out of uh, there, I ended up freelancing for a while. I ended up doing a bunch of stuff for TSR, including writing for Dark Sun, because it was a couple of my friends, uh, Troy Denning and Tim Brown, who were the creators of it, who I'd known for many years and doing freelancing at conventions and such. And uh, then we I ended up starting a company called Pinnacle Entertainment Group with Shane Hensley. And we did a game called Deadlands and Brave New World and bunches of other stuff. Uh, I left that company around 1999, I guess, 2000, when we started having kids. Uh, my eldest, Marty, was born in 1998, actually. So I guess 99 is when we left. And uh, we came back to Wisconsin and uh, I started freelancing again. I've been doing that ever since. So I've done video game writing and toy development and novels and i wrote you know, a couple editions of the marvel encyclopedia so you know non non-fiction books about fictional things um, <laughs> and whatever else could uh, put food on the table and i could have fun doing nice that is quite an expansive resume and uh so one of your latest big game projects is shotguns and sorcery which was in a bit of development turnaround for several years but is finally seeing the light of day you want to plug that a little bit I do. Uh, that was that's one of my favorite properties. I ended up starting out trying to develop that as an idea for third edition Dungeons and Dragons, actually for the Wizards of the Coast World Search that was won by my friend Keith Baker for Eberron, which I got to write a trilogy of Eberron novels for about the same time Keith was writing his. So uh, his book came out first, but I finished first. So I'm not even sure how you want to say <laughs> that, but anyway, we were writing at the same time, and I had originally sold the game to or the idea, the setting as a third edition Dungeons and Dragons setting to Mongoose Publishing. Uh, but then my wife became pregnant with quadruplets, which kind of threw a uh, wrench in all my plans for that year. I and I, I turned to the guys at Mongoose. I said, look, guys, this isn't going to happen. They're like, yeah, we understand. So uh, <laughs> that just kind of faded away until many years later, Robin Laws asked me for a short story. I thought, you know, I've been having this thing sit around the back of my head for about 10 years. I should probably do something with it. So I wrote a story for that. And I wrote a story for Steve Sullivan for the, for the Origins Writers Anthology, uh, Origins Game Fair, which is a big convention that's the second largest in the country behind Gen Con, of course. And then I did a Kickstarter for this thing called 12 for 12 back in 2012, where I tried to write a dozen novels, each of about 50,000 words. And I broke them into four different trilogies. The second of which, first of which was Brave New World. It was based upon the role-playing game that I had done, this dystopian superheroes game, which I've now got the rights back to and I want to do more with. But again, Ooh. there's just too many projects in the pipeline to quite get to it. But uh, uh, the second one was Shotguns and Sorcery, and it did very well. And eventually an artist and I got together on it. He was going to be helping out with an enhanced ebook edition of the, of the novels that fell through. So, But he was determined and he kept picking at me. He's like, I want to do something with you. I'm like, okay. you know. After about three years of him picking at me, I said, you know what? Yeah, I'm never going to get around to publishing the role-playing game myself. So if you really want to do it, go for it. I'll write it. Uh, and we'll get Rob Schwab to do the rules and we'll get We'll license the system, uh, the Cypher system from Monty Cook Games, and uh, it'll be a big hit, right? And so, we'll, you know, come on, Sp Spanky and Darling, Darla, we're going to put on a show in the barn, right? 
I make a little <laughs> rascal references dating myself terribly. Um, and uh, yeah, that's even before my time, right? So, um, so uh, but we got it going. And uh, then uh, Jeremy had some uh, issues in his life where he couldn't quite devote as much time as he wanted to. So the game kind of got shelved for a bit. Finally, uh, he ended up shipping it to backers in, 19, in uh, 2019. And then the rights reverted to me after that. I said, look, let's finish this off. I'll handle the writing and stuff for the rest of this, and you'll handle the artwork, and then I'll publish it, right? So I started publishing the game myself in Jan- uh, July of this year, and we had a few projects in the pipeline, that are, uh, some of which are being written by my son, Marty, who was the one who was uh, the reason we came back to Wisconsin for so many years ago. So he just graduated yeah. college from the University of Wisconsin, and he's looking for something to do. And, you know, hey, in a pandemic, you're not supposed to leave the house. and uh, it's hard to find a job because there's you know twenty percent unemployment, thirty percent unemployment. Uh, freelancing suddenly looks like a much better idea. So, it's, <laughs> yeah, definitely keeps you busy. Even, even if he has to work for his dad, you know how, t- how sad is that? <laughs> <laughs> so you you know you have obviously had a very long and storied career, and we're here to talk about Dark Sun. So let's let's get into that. So Jesse, why don't you give us a little a quick summary of what Mind Lords of the Last Sea is? My Lords of the Last Sea was released in 1996 as part of the revised Dark Sun setting lineup when Dark Sun had been shaken up a little bit by TSR to revitalize the line. It develops an area that's far from the rest of the Tablelands in the Tier region, a place called Marnita, the Last Sea of Athos. And it has information about the inhabitants of that region who live in a dystopian idyll that's controlled by disembodied brains with little towns huddled around a saltwater sea, isolated from the outside world by rigorous policing and psionic powers. And it has the settlement of the last of the lizard folk living on Athos, who were thought to have been exterminated by Celtis, who later became Aronis, of course, but were secretly preserved there by the Mind Lords. It's a classic. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So, Matt, like, how did you, you know, you said you were friends with Troy and, uh, and, and Tim Brown. How did you come to this project? Well, uh, yeah, I ended up being very good friends with Troy and Tim over the years, even Bill Slavisek. But uh, Troy and Tim and I actually were part of a writer's group here in Wisconsin after I moved back called the A-Literates, right? And it was <laughs> most of these guys who were not ex-TSR novelists, right? It was Rob King and Doug Niles and uh, Don Perrin and Steve Sullivan and bunches of other guys. And they even have a West Coast version now that I think is still going on with Jeff Grubb and, and Monty Cook and a whole bunch of other. Wolfgang Bauer, et cetera. But at the time, I think it was just that I was working on this stuff and Bruce Hurd, who was the guy who handed out assignments, said, hey, I think it's your turn, right? <laughs> and you know, he knew I knew Dark Sun. He knew I was a fan of it. Uh, so that was a, a very hard sell for me on that one. I had written a bunch of books to them already at this point, including, uh, uh, you know, I started out doing editing. I worked on Age of Heroes and then uh, The Complete Necromancer. I was a developer on Chronomancer. Then I started writing books to them like Sages and Specialists, the book of classes that nobody would ever want to play, and you know, ended up eventually doing a little bit more writing for them. And Bruce Hurd was a guy who's out. He runs, uh, he does a whole bunch of stuff from Astara and does these uh, new supplements for that era still. Uh, you can see mm-hmm. him on Kickstarter doing a lot of stuff. And Bruce is just the sweetest guy in the world, right? But he was always the guy like, if, if you were on Bruce's mind, the moment he was handing out assignments, you were gold. Right. So <laughs> I would always call up and this is back before we had too much in the way of email and such. Even so I would call Bruce and say, hey, Bruce, what do you got? I know you guys do your your schedules and 
when is the schedule being set? He says, oh, it'll be in about six weeks. So I wrote it down on my calendar, six weeks, call Bruce. And call him back. He's like, oh, it's two more weeks. Okay, two weeks, call Bruce. And Because the trick is, even if it's your best friend, if he's not thinking about you at the moment that they're handing out this stuff, you're not going to get the mm-hmm. job, right? Right. So uh, I was persistent and pesty enough that Bruce eventually said, oh, sure, Matt, here we, here we go. We got this for you. And when they give you these kind of projects, often they come with a brief. And the brief could be very in-depth or it could be very shallow. Right. It could be a page. Like I think when we did uh, Sages and Specialists, it was pretty shallow. Right. It was like, here's the idea. Uh, It's 12. It's 10 character classes that nobody want to play. And you got to fill 128 pages with them. I'm like, oh, great. So, you know, I have to come up with an outline and a page plan and figure out how to do that. But Mind Lords, they had a lot more feed or a lot more more in-depth brief for that. Right. And I forget if they actually gave me a page plan for it or not. But sometimes what they would do is literally give you this graph, uh, this diagram, essentially, what was going to be on every page in the book. In all wow. the books. Oh, wow. And you had to then write to whatever the outline was, right? And if you didn't agree mm-hmm. with something, you could say, well, I think it would be better like this or whatever. There was always room for negotiation. But sometimes it was just fairly like, okay, this is it. This is what you're writing. Go. With this one, I think I had a little bit more leeway. But honestly, it's been 20, well, it's 24 years since it was published. I think I actually wrote it in the summer of 95. Mm-hmm. So it's been 25 years since I've actually paid a whole lot of attention to the text. And I wrote it in a, in a crazy, uh, run up to an incredibly difficult deadline. Uh, and that was one of the reasons they hired me. They, and Shane Hensley, oh, you guys have probably talked to or are going to talk to. Because Shane wrote a bunch of stuff for Dark Sun back in the day, too. Yes. But Shane mm-hmm. and I were, and Shane and I and Steve Long were like the three fastest guys in the industry back in those days. <laughs> and we, we could each write about 5,000 words a day, right? Wow. I remember when Steve was at uh, Watsi during the third edition heyday, uh, there was a word count requirement each month that people had to yeah. write a certain amount and Long would hit it on day three of each month. Exactly. Oh my gosh. No, wow. they, they had uh, at TSR, they had uh, every five weeks, I think you were required to do a module unit, which was 32 pages, right? Which ended up being like, I don't even know what 32 pages comes out to in those days. It was probably like uh, 20,000 words, right? If it's um, uh, 750 words a page, it's 24,000 words. Yeah, exactly. So 24,000 words. So, uh, so you know, Shane and I could knock it out in a week, right? Uh, and Steve probably could do it in three uh, or three days. And yeah. you know, we'd wow. look at the guys at the and the guys at the company. We'd like, what do you do with the rest of your month? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that that's that was good for us because it meant that they knew they could you know call on us and say okay this is under a bit of a pressure deadline uh, deadline pressure but we know that you can actually handle this so um, but of course I remember writing this one uh, uh, we had actually set up a family vacation up at my wife's family's cabin up in northern Michigan which as I recall the day in those days didn't even have electricity much less <laughs> it didn't have electricity didn't have running water didn't have internet none of that stuff right. So I would actually literally take my power book, which is an old MacBook, essentially, walk over to somebody or a friend's cabin, plug in my power book overnight, and then take it from them the next morning, go right in a corner in a tent someplace, right? <laughs> That's awesome. And then just type until my battery ran out, and then I go screw around for the rest of the day. <laughs> and then having to turn it in at the end of it, just like, okay, I'm going to do this. My wife actually remembers helping me out with the project because... Back then, they also give. They actually would send me, you know, these uh, big map. There's a big map in the game, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they don't trust the writers to be cartographers because right? they're not stupid. And so, <laughs> they uh, instead of relying on me to sketch something out in the back of a of a beer wrapper or something, or, uh, they 
they send you actually a, a large hex map with hexes on it, large blank mm-hmm. map. And you have to actually go in and fill in every goddamn hex on the entire map. Right. So, and of course, you know, it's dark sun. So there's a lot of, it's just desert. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I just, I went through it. I marked in all the outlines for everything. And then my wife went in and filled in everything else. So, <laughs> so we could get it That's done. Awesome. Um, and some of the names of the cities in the, in mine words were actually named after the people we borrowed electricity from. Oh. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> That's great. So, and then we, I got it turned in as soon as I got back. Cause it was like, you know, go do this, go on vacation, come back, turn it in and go to Gen Con. I'm like, I can't go to Gen Con and see these people and be late. I need to have it done. So um, there were some long days there, but I managed to finish it up. Yeah. Right up to the ragged edge. It was. It was <laughs> fun, though. I mean, I had a great time with it. But um, but it's almost like cramming for a test. Once you're done, you're like, okay, it's done. And you're like, okay, that just slips out of my mind now. <laughs> right. So, like, literally, Jesse wrote me about this. He's like, hey, we you interested in this? I'm like, yeah, I got it. I think I remember writing that. And, um, <laughs> I got a PDF of it. I'm going through I'm like, yeah, I did write this. Holy shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I don't have notes from this, though. I, maybe if I go out in my garage and find the file. They used to send everything in paper, contracts and everything else. Right. So I might have a file in mm-hmm. someplace where uh, they actually describe everything and have the original maps and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that would be a, a wonderful mm-hmm. piece of history. Yeah, but I'm not yeah, sure yeah. anymore. You know, I think I probably sent the original map off to them in a FedEx envelope and a prayer. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't the kind of thing I could photocopy and, and hope that they didn't lose anything. But yeah, I think it's... As I recall, they used to do these page plans, and we had to have it all filled out. And if you didn't have one, you had to actually do the outline for them. And then the outline had to be approved. And then you were kind of off to the races, right? And, you know, it sounds kind of like, oh, oh, God, you had to write this. For, you had to write down on every page what you're going to write. Sure. But it still gives you a ton of freedom, actually, as far as what you're actually doing when you do the writing. So I remember you know, it was being told about the three guy, the three brains in a jar. I'm like, okay, brains in a jar. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Let's go <laughs> with that. Um, I mean, you know, there's uh, the bits of the druids and such. A lot of the stuff I was just making up off the top of my head for as much fun as I could possibly cram into this, while still hitting a lot of my own philosophical bits, like you know, uh, dystopian uh, horror that's underlying everything, and mm-hmm. and you know, uh, windsurfing druids, which I just thought was a lot of fun, uh, and which Jesse has, has also pointed out fits in very well with the setting, no matter what other people say about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's let's talk about that like sure. inspiration for for writing the setting. Um, Jesse's put some great notes. You know, it looks like there's like stuff from Stepford Wives, where you know, it looks like people living in a utopia that's actually that actually controls them. Right. And you've got some Star Trek episodes, uh, several of them. It looks like um, you know, different movies that have psychic beings going back in time to change uh, to change the past to ensure survival in the future. 1984, The Prisoners, so a bunch of stuff. Like, are those some of the things that you were thinking about, or like, what were some of your inspirations? Yeah, I, I think probably all of those. But I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> I, I guarantee The Prisoner was because there's a bit of short fiction in it where one of the characters ends it with BCing you, and it's one of the mine. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That was definitely in there. Then. <laughs> yeah, I was a Thanks. fan of The Prisoner. I actually didn't really get into it until uh, Steve Jackson Games came out with the Prisoner source book for GURPS way back when. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, you know, to go uh, really date myself, but yeah, I ended up getting into the show and the whole BCing thing. So, and I was always a fan of like tossing in little in jokes that nobody but me would probably get, or somebody mm-hmm. who'd been creeping around inside my head, which apparently Jesse's <laughs> been doing. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I'm sure a lot of that was in there. I mean, I was a big fan of dystopian literature. I took a dystopian literature class in college, 
Um, oh. and, and to me, you know, uh, a lot of that stuff speaks strongly to the way we should be thinking about how we govern ourselves and uh, what's important to people and uh, how you should be careful about who you hand your power over to. Things like that, which probably is why I'm a freelancer still to this day, as opposed mm. to working for anybody else. <laughs> Those have always been really strong themes in Dark Sun. The idea that you know power is dangerous and and it can be misused, and you have to beware of autocracy and people who will do terrible things with it. And uh, conversely, that individuals have power too, and that they have to use that power yeah. to make their world better in any way they can. Exactly, and that's something that uh, Tim and Troy and I all shared as a philosophy. I think, right? Um, we had a lot of chances to talk that over over beers over the years, and uh, yeah, we the illiterates was supposedly a, a writers group, but it was really a beer and burgers group every month. So <laughs> these, um, these two are the same thing. I don't understand. Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> these are synonymous, right? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it was a lot of that stuff was in there. It was, uh, you know, like I said, I was a fan of dystopian literature. Uh, I've been politically active since I was a kid. My mother used to drag me around. She was politically active since she was in college. So she would literally drag me and my younger siblings around in a wagon and have us go stuff political literature into people's doors when I was like five years old, right? So, <laughs> um, and I'm still doing stuff like that. I'm actually volunteering with the Democratic Party. Uh, I just did some training so I could do uh, voter protection hotline stuff this week. So being involved in democracy. That's... Yeah, exactly. Well, as they say, you know, there's, uh, you know, we're, as you just said, you know, there's, of course, there's things happening there, maybe getting to be autocratic. and. Uh, but you still have individual power and you need to actually exercise it or you're going to lose it. So, mm -hmm. And I still believe strongly in that to the point where I do devote some of my time to that. Uh, I take off election day every year so I can go help out uh, with uh, working at the polls and, uh, and making sure people can get out to vote and all that kind of stuff. So That's all very meritorious, whichever side of the aisle someone may land on. Right, right. I, you know, I, I'm not trying to. I, I will tell you who to vote for. Right? I'm not shy of that. But, <laughs> but, um, but also, I don't. I, I also think that more people voting and doing so in an informed way ends up being better for everybody. Right. So. Right. Definitely. In that sense, I, you know, that that's my Captain America speech coming out of me. There. Sure. <laughs> we we need to take responsibility for using our voice in society, or someone else is going to use it for us. Exactly. Right. Sure. Yeah. You'll just get co-opted. Right. So, I mean, that yep. certainly comes out in my words in the last year, I think, where you're oh, these yes. players, you're these people who you have power, you have the ability to change things, you have the ability to, to do things. And if you don't, things will get worse. Right. So it's really up to you to make a difference in life, which I think is a great thing for any adventurer to do. Mm -hmm. It's maybe a little bit deeper philosophically than, you know, kick down the door, kill the orcs and take the treasure. But, you know, it's still an adventure in a way. So Yeah. Yeah, so one of the cool things about Mind Lords is you have this sort of love triangle power trinity of the rulers and the protectors of Marnita. So they are named Barani, uh, Kosvaret, and Thessic. What was kind of the inspiration for sort of having that love triangle in the in in the game, or was that was that something that they had already like that they handed you? I don't remember. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but, I, but I will tell you that uh, I think one of the reasons you have a triumvirate like that is that. The, uh, a group of three is always inherently unstable, right? Mm -hmm. And as a game designer, mm -hmm. you understand this. Designing a three-player game is probably one of the hardest things to do. Uh, and that's often uh, when you're trying to design a game, two-player is easy, four-player is easy, three-player is a bitch, right? It's just terrible <laughs> to design for because what inevitably happens is uh, two players form an alliance, right? But even if one player becomes more powerful than the two players form an alliance to go against them. And in any kind of a tr uh, trinity like that, uh, if there's anything but the purest intentions, things tend to fall apart. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think that worked out with these guys as well. It's just you can see the cracks will form 
between them because of this. Right. Mm -hmm. And and of course, all of them are unstable in different ways. And and Thesek, who's arguably the most stable of them, is decidedly not a good person. And they've been doing this for 9,000 years. So it sort of is, I guess these are the cracks in the wall that a player can widen in order to exploit these breaks if they're going to try and make a run at the Mind Lords. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just actually flipping through the PDF right now. One of the things that I just flashed by me is happiness is mandatory, right? Uh -huh. And I can tell you, mm -hmm. I swiped that directly from paranoia. Yep. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, just the idea, right? So the idea of the... the the benevolent computer that is not so benevolent looking over you. So. Right, right. Because Mind Lords, that's the the whole dystopia, is from the outside, this looks like the, the most idyllic place left on Athos. There's an actual saltwater sea, a, a tiny ocean, and little self-sufficient villages, and people who seem to be happy. Everyone's happy all the time. But once you start scratching the surface, you realize that it's because they are required to be happy <laughs> or they're going to be harmonized. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Exactly, which I you know that's that's something I think we all feel. It's it's uh, essentially peer pressure in a, in a very real way. You know, you, you're, if you're not rah 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 for the team, then you must be against the team, which means that boom, you're in trouble. It's certainly uh, at the forefront of people's minds in the era of social media as well, where we're presenting a facade on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, because people don't want to hear bad things. They don't want to hear things that bring them down. And so right. a lot of people are invested in creating their face, their persona for the internet, as opposed to who their real life is. Yeah, ironically, we'll end up uh, making hap happiness mandatory on our own, even yeah. without it being mandated from above, which is kind of ironic, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be miserable from now on. I'll be openly miserable. I'll, I'll <laughs> fuck that trend. So Jesse, you'd mentioned that uh, that the the sea there is is a saltwater sea, which is not really something we had seen on Dark Sun before uh, on Athos, because the you know the seas have been turned to silt, and so you know nobody really thought that there were going to be oceans or mm -hmm. saltwater seas or anything. So Matt, why did you decide to make uh, Marnita a saltwater sea instead of freshwater? Like, was that even a thought, or you just kind of did it? Now, I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I think that probably came down from above. But I, ah. I think the, the reason was, as you said, I mean, uh, the silt is there. And, I mean, we mix water in with the stuff. It's going to tend to be salty. But, you know, I grew up around the Great Lakes here, so I'm a big fan of uh, freshwater oceans, essentially. But <laughs> I, I, I'm not exactly sure why we decided to make it a saltwater, although I think it has that feel of the Great Salt Lake around it, you know, Salt Lake City and yeah. maybe a little bit of Mormonism mm. tossed in as well. It, it definitely mm. feels like an inland sea. As a result, yeah, exactly. Well, mm -hmm. of course, because you know the planet is pretty much dry except for that one spot, so it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, and it does give players who see it the first time, or, or characters in Dark Sun who see it for the first time, that whole water, water, and not a drop to drink. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the greatest bit. It's like you're just cheated. You're like, oh my god, I'm <laughs> gonna go and drink my fill for the first. Ah, oh, god, I'm sick. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, kiddos. You know, what are you going to do? And they probably, you know, <laughs> these kids, they probably don't know about salt water, right? They're just, oh, it looks right. like water. Yeah, it tastes no, great. Sure. Yeah. And it's yeah. even salty. How wonderful. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right up until they start vomiting. You know, it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> so do you remember uh, much about like the law keepers? So in the, in the, in the PDF, uh, in the book, it talks about how they're kind of overseen by this kind of corrupt force of thought police who basically track down deviants and harmonize them, either terminating them or mind wiping them and then yep. changing their personalities. What, what can you tell us about them? 
Well, I mean, that I think was, uh, again, part, uh, probably inspired a bit by the prisoner and by dystopian literature in general in mm-hmm. 1984, where, you know, uh, everybody has to be on the same page and you're saying the same things. And if, if not, you're not mind wiped, but uh, you end up with double speak and you actually reprogram your mind essentially right. to, to make these things happen. So I think that was probably a lot of it, just uh, making sure that it felt like something. That, part of when you're doing something like this is you want to make it, you know, obviously it doesn't, you're not going to have, you know, cyanic brains coming out and wiping your mind or anything, but you want to make it feel like it could happen in real life where if you weren't careful about how you think, people will come to you and tell you how to think, right? And what does that do to you and how does that affect you? And how, what does that do to a society, really? And does it hollow it out from the inside, right? I mean, in a very real way, a lot more of Athos is very much more honest than this society. This yeah. society is one huge lie from one end to the other. People are only happy because it's, they're made to be. And the real tragedy of it is they probably could be happy there uh, if they were allowed to do it on their own. Uh, mm-hmm. That's really interesting because, uh, of course, today there's there's been unrest uh, because of police actions people are, are unhappy with. And so we're seeing people so, sort of saying, hey, police can't just act unilaterally like this. And then there's some who would argue that the media is occasionally complicit in this as well by crafting messages in a particular way to get people to think about these incidents in a, in a specific light. So the law keepers are sort of the police half of that equation, but Marnita doesn't really seem to have that. I don't know, maybe they also do the media half in that they're also indoctrinating people and telling them, hey, you're doing things wrong and it's making people unhappy. Here is what you should be thinking, citizen. And if you don't get on page, we will make you get on page. Exactly. Uh, I think that's a lot of it, too. And, you know, it's it's you know, an argument, really. What's better? It, obviously, they have a society that's happy. It's not at war. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's perfectly easy to live in. But what kind of life is it really is the question. It reminded me, to to be honest, when I was reading it, of the Taver Kettle from Traveler, if you remember that old sci-fi horse, ah, yeah. the thought police of the Jodani, who would go around looking for people who were unhappy or depressed or angry or whatnot, and then they would take them off to indoctrination. But in Jodani society, this was seen as a positive good because people were happy that there's someone out there who cares. There's someone who's looking out <laughs> for me and is going to make things better if I ever feel bad. Right. Or maybe you've just been trained to think that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like (laughs) you've been so deeply indoctrinated in this society that you don't realize that they have completely taken away your ability to think for yourself. Exactly. And it gets very tricky very quickly, right? I think it's something it's always good to ponder and to be suspicious about no matter where you are and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm that, not that I'm usually that suspicious in in reality. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of got me thinking of, uh, I was listening to the Manifest Zone podcast, which is Keith Baker's, yeah. uh, some other co-hosts, um, uh, Eberron podcast, and they were talking about the Kalistar and those they, those are races there that they have a, a, a spirit in them. And those spirits are trying to escape from the Dreaming Dark. And the Dreaming Dark, the people that live there and the quarry that are part of them and everything, like they are just like, constantly or i guess they were talking about rayedra but the kalashar that live there were kind of constantly like they don't have their own dreams they're just sort of fed this basically state-sponsored you know media Mm -hmm. and that kind of got me thinking about this of like perhaps you know maybe the uh the mind lords kind of do something like that to you know just kind of put information out there uh for everyone to consume uh, you know so that everyone's getting the same information it seems like something they would do yeah definitely definitely yeah and honestly, part of this was, uh, you know, one of the neat things about writing Mind Lords is it wasn't so much the 
traditional fantasy, the swords and sandal fantasy right. uh, that, mm-hmm. that uh, Darkson had been built in. This is more like doing science fiction inside of that, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that really was kind of a fun area to explore as well, you know, trying to come up with these wacky ideas and see how they would fit into that uh, that classic Athos kind of feeling. It definitely has sort of a, a heavy metal vibe, like the the magazine. Yeah. The, the idea that it's got this classic sword and sandal that also carries the idea of this is a futuristic dystopia where a world was destroyed, which, of course, is what happened in Athos. And now there are these tiny remnants of, of ancient knowledge from the lost eras that are still surviving. And Marnita is a pocket of that lost era that has survived. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So let's kind of move on. We, we briefly talked about the surfer druids. Let's kind of get into that. So one of the things uh, that people, you know, think about when they think about My Lord of the Last Sea is the surfer druids because it, it felt so jarring. <laughs> and, you know, you look at some of the art, there's like a, a, a picture of, uh, I think, three women like sunbathing. And, and then there's another one of like a lizard folk swimming with dolphins. And so all of this stuff, you know, feels very sort of, you know, out of place in Dark Sun. So, you know, what was your idea of bringing those surfer druids in and and how they fit into into Athos? Well, I think part of it is that it should be jarring. Again, I mean, it's like doing science fiction in a fantasy setting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be something where the uh, characters come there and go, holy cow, this is like a whole different world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you did this in something like Star Wars, it would literally be a whole different world. You would go to a different world <laughs> and find something because they don't ever do the same climate in the same place. But right. um, yeah. Or they ever do different climates in the same place. So, but I think it's, uh, you know, part of it was, uh, yeah, I've spent enough time at beaches in my life and, and thought it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I think the the almost religious philosophy of the Druids uh, as far as trying to get in tune with nature and what could be more in tune with nature than riding a wave, right? Uh, or having it pull you along with the, with the wind, you know, adapting tools to make these kind of things happen and to do it on an mm-hmm. individual level like that. So uh, if you've ever watched guys who do, proper surfing and wind and windsurfing it's fantastic it's kind of amazing so and i've done some of that before i'm very bad at it mind you <laughs> i can barely get up on a surfboard i can do a little bit of windsurfing but um it's uh but it's still always a lot of fun right and there's still that combination of you know and the ocean and it, the last sea essentially there's this combination of just love of it and you know deep terror of what can be underneath its surface at the same time <laughs> the right? squark so, yeah yes. exactly right <laughs> I, mean, I flipped a sailboat about a mile off of uh, the Florida coast once, and you know every shark story you ever come, ever heard in your life comes right back to you. Right? <laughs> but you, you know, then you write it, and you're back on your feet, and you go. So, so the druids are are both representing sort of a primal religious ecstatic uh, idea, where they're riding this wave that's just carrying them wherever it will, and that could take them into danger or it could take them into freedom. And so, in that exactly. sense, they're that's a little rebellion showing an individual path in the middle of this dystopia and calling back to sort of Polynesian and, and Hawaiian roots of this being a religious way to achieve communion with the world around you. Yeah, I totally, yeah, I totally agree with that. I, one of the other college courses I could take, but you know, when I wrote this, I wasn't that far out of college. So, you know, five years or whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, I had taken a course about medieval sources of modern culture because I was forced to as a prerequisite. <laughs> but part of that was uh, we ended up studying the desert fathers and mothers who are these ascetic monks from way back in the early days who were out in the desert. And they basically would just uh, live these very simple lives, uh, almost on the edge of torturing themselves to try to become as in tune with nature as they humanly could, right? 
mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a sense of trying to get closer to God. I mean, the less that you had of civilization and people and whatever around you, the closer you were to God. And I think that comes through in the Druids here as well. They're trying to get in touch with nature by returning to that primal source. And, you know, water obviously is a symbol of Mother Earth, and you know you don't get a whole lot of that in Athens. Right. So this is the best place possible to do this kind of thing. Actually, get in touch with them. They're anchorites who have sort of rejected the society of Marnita and are showing. Listen, you don't you don't need the Mind Lords in order to survive. Exactly. Exactly. They're getting. They're going. They're going straight past the the Pharisees to God Himself, so to speak. Right. right. Amazing. Yeah, that's 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 fantastic. You know, I will admit that 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 is, you know, I think I, I was in high school when this came out. And so, you know, I didn't really connect with that aspect of it. But the way you're talking about it totally makes sense. I'm definitely going to have to give this uh, product another another look for sure. Well, to be honest with you, I thought they would have cut it. <laughs> I was like, I wonder if they're going to let me get away with this. But if they cut that, they have to cut all of the new equipment and new proficiencies that go with it. And suddenly you're under like 12 pages. Exactly. And you know, what are you going to do then, nice. guys? You know, you're going to make yeah, yeah. me rewrite all oh, that? Seems like a lot of work. You have to pay me more. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, I thought it was hilarious, but uh, sometimes when you're doing this stuff, especially when you're doing work for hire and you're just making up stuff for other people that you're never going to own, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And when I do that, I try not to stick too much of my own original ideas. I try to riff off what's there already, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also part of it is trying to see where the boundaries are and yeah. what you're going to be allowed to get away with at any particular point. You know, are they going to say, no, this is crazy. You can't do that. But I'm like, well, you, you signed off the outline. <laughs> You know, so <laughs> sounds like your problem, not mine. But, you know, and it was just fun. I, I think that also when they read it, they probably gathered that idea of fun. You know, this is something different. It's not just something mm-hmm. like we've already seen a dozen times in, in Athos already. And uh, yeah, it's a fine new. line. I think for some DMs, it's maybe not a good fit for what they're doing. But for sure. other DMs, it can be inspiring. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's really literally like a whole new setting in that sense, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It just doesn't fit in with with uh, the rest of Dark Sun at all in a lot of ways. It's meant to be this kind of sore thumb that sticks out on the side. And I think that's okay. I mean, one of the neat things about it, uh, the Mind Wars, is you could totally ignore it if you want to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's cut off. It's uh, just this you know, place in the middle of nowhere that if you want to not pay any attention to it, you're more than welcome to. But if you want to absorb it and you want to get into it, you can have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, you could run it as a campaign or you could throw players into the deep end, both literally and figuratively, by taking characters <laughs> from elsewhere in Athos and tossing them into the politics and psionics of Marnita and Saragar. Exactly. And it came out about the same time as Wind Riders of the Jagged Cliffs, which was another one of those sort of product isolates that involved the, right. the halflings of the Jagged Cliffs who didn't really interact with outsiders, had their own culture and their own history. And both of them were sort of like, here's a a 90 degree turn on Dark Sun that's Mm -hmm. still part of this sort of dystopian desert world, but has its its own unique flavors and and, uh, experiences. Exactly. I think that was part of the brief too, is when they were doing this stuff, they want to make sure. One of the problems when you're developing a large line like this is that uh, if everything is essential, then the burden to the player to buy everything becomes a little too much at a certain point, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, you got yeah. the players who have been with you since the beginning, or the game masters, whoever, and they may have purchased every product for that line. But if you have somebody coming in new and they're like, I want to, oh, this Mind Lord's Last Seed thing looks great. What do I have to buy to be able to play this? And if you have to buy six other supplements to be able to play it, then that's a problem, yeah. right? 
So by doing stuff that's these little bits that you can pop in and out or ignore if you don't want them or whatever, that makes it a lot easier. These are optional products and they're not uh, built to the point where you, nobody's putting a gun to your head and saying you can't play this game properly unless you own this product. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the, you're yeah. not going to kick in someone's door and go, what are you doing not using this product? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's specifically designed to be, to be separable, so it's fine. You know? One thing I always loved about these sorts of side elements to a game line is even if you don't use Marnita or the Jagged Cliffs or the, the Crimson Savannah in your Dark Sun game, they might inspire you to do other things with your version of the Tablelands and the Lands Beyond. And they, okay. by going that far afield, they get your brain percolating on what if I did something really wild and extravagant and different with my version of Dark Sun. Yeah, I think that's entirely uh, accurate. I mean, a lot of times when people do these things too, I mean, most people who buy role-playing game supplements, you know, not all of them play them, right? A lot of them just read them so they can rip off the ideas for whatever their home campaign is. Mm -hmm. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to do it, right? We're being paid to come up with wacky ideas for you, and then you get to steal them and do whatever the hell you want to with them at, you know, at your own home. Right? Yeah. I'm not going to tell you you're playing it wrong. As long as you're having fun, you're playing it right, and that's all that really matters. Yeah. So one of the cool things about Dark Sun was that, you know, they, they sort of killed off a bunch of races, at least if you go by the Prism Pentad kind of history, they killed off a bunch of races and Mine Lords of the Last Sea is one of the products that I think one of just two products where it kind of mentions or brings back some of the older races. And so like one of them was like a, an adventure where there was like a troll. Um, but this is where like, there's a significant amount of lizard folk here, which were supposedly killed off by Celtis, what was their role in that? Was that something that you threw in there? Or again, was that something that was that would that they gave you? Well I think I think that made sense, right? Uh because again, it's this isolated pocket mm -hmm. where these people have a lot of sway over it. So if you were wanted to bring something back that had been protected for a long time, that just made more sense to be able to do it that way. Right. And again, I, I don't remember if it was my idea or their idea to do those kind of things. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times the discussions when you do this are like, what do you want me to put into this? And what can I get away with? And what's out of bounds, right? <laughs> right. Um, sometimes they'll say, well, you can, like I, I was writing a Halo novel, right? And the Halo guys are like, uh, you can kill off anybody in this entire group except for these two people. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cool. Well, now I just have to come up with good reasons to kill people. That seems like an easy job. So, um, And then people can gripe at me about it for this is all fiction, Mr. FBI. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, I've read enough books. I'm on FBI watch list. Yeah. So I wrote a book called, uh, what the hell was it? It was, uh, it was a book about things that you're not supposed to know how to do. Forbidden Knowledge. Ah. Was, uh, somebody had written the first one called Forbidden Knowledge, and I wrote the sequel, More Forbidden Knowledge. It was 101 things that you should not know how to do. Uh, it was you know, all sorts That's of wacky awesome. shit. Amazing. Just doing the research for that, I'm sure, got me on a, on a watch list. Right? Right? So, in fact, <laughs> yeah. I think that was the last entry was how to get on an FBI watch list. Write this book. That's all you have to do. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, lizard folk are, are interesting. It's sort of the Jurassic Park element uh, of Dark Sun. Here's the, the lizard people of the past that have survived uh, out of time. Yep. Since there's... Thrycreen and Aarakocra and Terrans and whatnot. Do you think that lizard folk would make interesting PCs in a Dark Sun setting? And and what would a player do with a lizard folk if you managed to get out of Marnita and, and into the world at large? Because Keltus is no longer in the genocide business. He's turned over a new leaf right. and become Aronis, a good guy. So no one's hunting you. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it'd be pretty amazing. I mean, uh, if you were a lizard folk wandering the world, nobody would ever have seen anything like you ever before, right? Mm -hmm. They would they'd probably seen lizards. 
Right. Uh, so, but they would think, oh Maybe my God, this is a, a giant mutant, right? <laughs> silt runners and surins, which are sort of kind of, but not nearly as large <laughs> and impressive. Exactly. Exactly. So the question is to everybody, do they think of you as a curiosity or do they think of you as a monster? And really, I think that's up to you in a lot of ways and how you start out. You know, do you go in there and you act like a monster? Do you attack people? Do you kill them and take their things? Or do you show up and, tr you know, try to talk to people? Do you actually have an ability with language? Do you, have you learned the common tongue and you can, uh, you can actually communicate with people and say, I come in peace and blah, blah, blah. And then here I am to set up a trade route. And Jesus Christ, that got boring immediately. So yeah, yeah. You want to be the monster. Going to be the monster. <laughs> but, but that could be a pretty amazing campaign where you're playing all lizard folk who've come from Marnita and are like going to the outside world to, to, discover something or get the MacGuffin or whatnot and then bring it back. And of course, you have to dodge the, the law keepers because you're not supposed to leave. And then when you come back, the law keepers are supposed to keep people out. Man trying to escape, man trying to escape. And uh, exactly the, <laughs> you know, it could be like Fallout where, you know, the vault, your home that, that you've been living in for hundreds of years, protected from the outside world, there's something wrong and you all get sent out mm -hmm. to do something about it. And then you come back. But now you have all this knowledge of, of how things are in the outside world. And you're like, you know, things are terrible out there, but things are terrible here in a different way. So what do we do? Exactly. And suddenly you have a perspective that nobody else has. And, you know, most people are probably not going to believe you. Yeah. Right? And that's uh, that's going to be really the trick is then how do you, A, convince them or B, if you can't convince them, do the right thing anyway? Or do you give up? Right. You're right. heroes. You don't give up. So you got to do something. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that'd be fun. I mean, maybe you got banished at some point. It was like either you stick around and you get killed or you have to leave, right? And yeah, figure, yeah. Oh, we're sending him into the desert. He's going to die for sure, right? Or they're going to die for mm -hmm. sure. And uh, no, well, what do you know? They survived. Yep. <laughs> Interest, strange things have happened. So, that yeah, I think be that'd be kind of fun, actually. Yeah, it's an interesting reversal because for a lot of Dark Sun characters, it's, you show up at Marnita and everything's different. But with the lizard folk, it's you've started in Marnita and as soon as you leave, everything's different. Yeah. Exactly. And honestly, for a traditional, somebody somebody who's done tons of other campaigns, doing that would seem, you know, like Marnita wouldn't seem too different from some of the other things you've done. Right. You know, as far, it'd be more like your traditional fantasy than Athos is. And then going into Athos, you're like, oh, wow, look at this. Holy shit. You know, what have we gotten ourselves into here? Yeah. It's pretty much a post-apocalyptic fantasy. So Nice. And yeah. you're right. It's like they have a vault here. It's just this pre-apocalyptic uh, bubble that hasn't been broken yet. All for good fun. So let's move on to the um, the adventure uh, in the lands of the last sea. Jesse, what can you tell us about the adventure? Well, in the lands of the last sea, uh, a lot of uh, the adventures in the, the late 80s and early 90s were done as sort of geo-hopping, where they would say, oh, we've given you this book about a region of the Forgotten Realms, and here's an adventure that will take you across every nook and corner of it. And so in the lands of the last sea does that with Marnita, and it takes you from various villages to the underground to the the lonely butte where there's a giant tribe living you cross paths with law keepers the underground the lizard folk and the mind lords themselves so it's sort of a, a whirlwind tour that you undertake when you stumble across one of the mind lords deranged experiments kind of like the old star trek episode spock's brain cosperate has been taking out people's brains and he's making a giant brain pile that he's going <laughs> to use for psionic amplification for one of his special projects and eventually you confront him and you might stop him or you might not and in the end things are sort of set right a couple of people on the internet have opined oh well at the end everything gets set right whether the pcs fail or not so nothing changes but that's not true because the pcs have run into the mind lords regardless of how it turns out they now have seen behind the curtain and the mind lords know who you are too 
<laughs> exactly. I mean, honestly, this is meant to be, as you say, it's a, it's basically a roadshow, right? Where you're going to go off and see the highlights of, of the area. And, and uh, mm-hmm. But it also is meant to be like the launch launching point for a campaign, right? Mm-hmm. So once you've done this, then you're prepared to go off and do your own thing in whichever direction you want to go. And I think uh, if you manage to get through that original adventure and you have all the source material from the source book, you've got a wealth of material to play with. I agree. That was the intention, at least. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it throws you really in the, the thick of things. Like, you might be playing new characters who are third level or whatever, and you run into Kosovarit, and he's a 29th level psionicist, I believe. So yep. you've got you've got a very long-term goal. You know that the Mind Lords are messed <laughs> up and that they are dangerous yeah. and something must be done, but it's going to be many, 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 many steps along that road of gaining levels before you are ready to confront them yourself. Exactly. If you ever will be, right? Right. And what happens if you ever, if you do overthrow them? Yeah, it's going to be insanity, right? Yeah, that's that's a, a a common theme in Dark Sun as well. Like the the whole business with the sorcerer monarchs out outside. If you knock over one of them, like they do in Tear in the the canonical histories, uh, suddenly the dragon isn't getting the dragon's levy. Well, okay. Well, now we have to fight off the dragon. All right, we fought off the dragon, so he didn't get to take the levy this year. Oh, well, that means that he can't cast the spell that keeps Rajat in prison. So now Rajat gets up, and it's just <laughs> exactly. the dominoes start tumbling. So say you overthrow the Mind Lords, now nobody's psionically protecting Marnita from the outside world, and nobody's keeping outsiders from getting out and insiders from getting out, and and, uh, and the whole house of cards is ready to go crumbling down. And then that raises great philosophical questions like, how far do we go to protect paradise? Do we become new mind lords in the process? Do we allow the people of Marnita to decide for themselves what the future of Marnita is going to be, even if that could put them in danger from outside uh, influences like the dragon and the other sorcerer monarchs? Exactly. So every time you, you destroy something, you create a vacuum, right? And something's going to fill it. It has to either be you or something else. So yeah. you can't just step back and say, okay, it's not my fault. You know, you broke it, you bought it, as they say. So right. it's going to be interesting for you. <laughs> So one of the cool things that I noticed in the adventure flip through it again was that there are storm giants in it. Um, and that's unusual because in Dark Sun, we've got like your your plains giants and your beast headed giants and kind of like your silt giants, although those are sort of the same. But like they're just we, we don't really have like your fire giants. And normally, you know, until this, we didn't have storm giants or anything. So what like how did they get included in this uh, in this adventure? Yeah, I think it was because there's water. Right. It's, mm. there's, it, it's uh, the last sea. Uh, it makes sense that you might have something that was doing water. I mean, there are storms on Athos with the dust storms and everything else. Right. right? But, but this is kind of a different thing to actually have, you know, lightning and rain and things like that. So real um, weather. It seemed like, exactly. It seemed like mm-hmm. storm giants would be the best fit for that and a good excuse to bring them back. Right. And also they're, they're damn fun. Mm. Yeah. So I've always enjoyed storm giants. I think they're, they're kind of fun. And also in the sense that they're, you know, these are some of the most powerful creatures in the entire planet, but they're not running things. They just want to do their own thing in their own area. Right. Yeah, I there's like 30 of them on the Lonely Butte. Yeah, it's like a tribe, really, right? Yeah. Um, and they, they're pretty much left to themselves, and they don't go messing around with other people most of the time. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, interesting to see, okay, is this a different philosophy? Can you Could you live with them? Can you talk with them? Or are you going to fight them? Or what are you been pressed into here? Uh, right. I think that's uh, that was really the reason behind it. Plus, you know, there's the half giants and Athos and all this. And there's obviously a whole bunch of, of uh, history going on with that. I was, I was curious flex, about Flexing that. a different muscle. Because the, the storm giants may or may not even know about half giants if they've been in Marnita this whole time and uh, never exposed to the things that have happened in history over the, the last 9,000 years. 
So exactly how they respond to half giants is is kind of a an open question. Exactly, yeah, so, but they just look and say, "What? How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> how does that work? I don't know. You know, it's and they might be repulsed. They might be intrigued. You know, who knows? It would be interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, yeah, you know, it's you know, the neat thing about Dungeons and Dragons is that you get to make up your own answers for a lot of this stuff. If I wanted, if I could answer every question in this entire thing, it wouldn't be 144 pages. It would be you know, 3,000. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. So the, you know, we have, you know, moved away from second edition, from third edition. We're up to fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons now. You know, at some point we assume that Dark Sun will come out as fifth edition. Uh, do you have uh, much experience with uh, fifth edition D&D, Matt? I've played a bunch of it. I haven't written anything for it, I don't think yet, but I have played a bunch of it. Mostly at conventions, right? My kids like to play D&D. So every time we go to a convention together, we set up a couple different adventures and play through it. I actually like 5th edition quite a bit. I think it's a pretty decent game. I think it's faithful to the original stuff. Streamlines a lot of the stuff that was a pain in the ass in, in previous editions. And uh, it concentrates on the fun. So and I, uh, I'm really kind of impressed with how the whole line has grown under Mike Merle's uh, guidance there, right? I mean, it's Bill Slavicek before who was uh, there through 3rd and 4th edition. Um, and then Mike took over for fifth edition. And I think it's amazing how popular the game is now, much more so than it was before. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Part of that's just timing as far as like uh, Twitch streams and everything else goes, right? Right. But, uh, you know, in the past, there were elements within Wizards and TSR before that that were very much against sharing the game with anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the OGL from third edition was a big break for that. But you notice that uh, when fourth edition came along, they weren't very open with it. It took them a long time to actually mm-hmm. do that. And yeah. fifth edition, they were still a little cautious with it. They didn't quite open it right away, but they did eventually. And it's now pretty wide open. People can do all sorts of different things for it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really been a winning recipe for them in a lot of ways. It's kind of funny because, you know, when I was writing these supplements for TSR, in those days, these things were, uh, you're on a treadmill, really. I mean, they were doing, mm. you know, a dozen releases for every line, for, uh, and there were several of them every year. And nowadays, when Wizards does, like, you know, four books in a year, right? Yeah. Uh, ent- yeah. entirely across ever- the entire line. Right. And I think it's a much sharper way for them to do things. It's easier for people to follow along as opposed to trying to drown people in product. Yeah, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, now it's, it's, it's impossible to keep up with everything. It's four books, always hardcover, and typically around like the 320-page mark, as opposed to back in the 90s where you'd get a dozen books where maybe one of them was a hardcover, but everything else was soft covers ranging from 96 to 192 pages. Exactly. And they figured out how to make money off doing a lot more copies of, of a fewer number of books produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, you know, for the stuff that they don't want to do, that I think they're always like, oh, geez, somebody has to do this. They have the DMs Guild now, so they can have people do it on yep. their own. Right. And they can concentrate on the big ticket stuff, which is really mm-hmm. where they want to be anyway. I mean, honestly, there's times where I'm wondering, you know, if Hasbro looks at D&D and says, why are we even bothering with this, considering, you know, we have Magic and you know, Monopoly and everything else? Because uh, D&D is kind of a rounding error for them. Um, but it's also, you know, you know uh, Hasbro is also very deeply attached to their, to their brands, their trademarks. And they would never give up Dungeons and Dragons, but this way they get to guide it. They get to uh, have a lot of influence over it, but they don't have to do all the work to constantly put out tons and tons of right, product. Right. It works very well for them. Right. So sure. there's there's obviously a lot of stuff that you could do with 5th edition and uh, the Mind Lords material specifically having characters being from Marnita as a background or potentially the Mind Lords being a Warlock's patron that gives you psychic abilities and spells 
yeah. former lawgiver or lawkeeper as a, a background or even a subclass, maybe someone who was a lawkeeper and then they started to realize what they were doing and broke away. Druids having their own circle of the last sea. Uh, there's there's a ton of ideas that, that you could take with this for fifth ed. If you were going to do something for fifth edition with last sea, what might be something that you would do with it? Yeah, I would probably update it and I would probably break it. <laughs> I would, I, I would uh, have something disastrous have happened. Mm -hmm. So it uh, became mm -hmm. a bit more dynamic because, again, I mean, my Lord's Last Sea, when you encounter it, it's kind of been stable for, forever. Right? right. So I think it'd be interesting to take that and then build off that and do something where, like, well, okay, this has been stable for long, so long. And then, you know, the Storm Giants revolt and they kill one of the three Mind Lords, right? right. Or the, one, two mm -hmm. of the Mind Lords turn against uh, the other one. or. Uh, there's an, a general uprising and the mind lords wipe everybody's brain and they've all been asleep for 10 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all sorts of different wacky ideas you can come up with and try to see what you can do. But I, I would try to update it that way where I would just basically stick a, a wrench in the works and see what breaks and then see how that, you know, see the interesting ways in which it could break, right? Because I think that's where you get the most story potential out of those kind of things. Right, right. Yeah, in those, those moments of dynamism where the heroes need to rise to the occasion and they have the opportunity to make changes. Exactly. And I think, you right. know, again, that's one of the ways that Wizards is doing it nowadays. They give you a, a setting and they give you the adventure and they give you the rules for it. And then they say go, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd probably yeah. do like a two, 300 page book like that and say, here, this is everything you humanly need for this. And, you know, if you want to mix it with the rest of Dark Sun, great. If not, you have this entire section here you can just go mad with and have fun. Amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. So have you, um, you know, you said you hadn't written anything, you know, have, have you given thought to writing anything for the DMs Guild or anything like that? Yeah, actually, uh, I'm playing around with different ideas. And there's a possibility we'll take shotguns and sorcery, convert it over to fifth edition, for instance. Back when we originally licensed the game from Monty Cook, that wasn't mm -hmm. an option, right? Uh, it would have been a natural thing to do. But they had not opened up the game yet at that point. I think it was still in playtesting. And mm -hmm. So it'd be interesting to see a fifth edition version of that. And I think that'd be a lot of fun. And, you know, I'd always be up for uh, playing around with d and I love d and I love the, the, whole, the whole group of players and everything else that's built up around it, the ecology and the economy, essentially. But uh, nobody's asked me to do anything with it game-wise in many years. I have written a bunch of things for it over the years. I, uh, in the fifth edition time, I wrote Dungeonology, which came out from uh, mm -hmm. Candlewick and Studio Press. I also wrote uh, six endless quest books, mm -hmm. which were these uh, pick a path books or kind of choose your own adventure type stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wrote six of those for Candlebook again. And Dungeonology is kind of this thing where it introduces you to the Forgotten Realms. Yeah. But it was the part of the ology series, like Dragonology and Spyology mm -hmm. and UFOlogy. And then they licensed Dungeons and Dragons and they hired me to write it. So I've been deep within, uh, as they say, I'm part of the team. You know, if I want something, I can call them up and say, hey, send me a book or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, I still haven't done any, any core writing for them in many, many years. That's probably okay. I mean, a lot of what they do, they got a lot of in-house guys who are doing a great job. And then they tend to job out little bits to a lot of different people. Yeah. Right. And my preference these days is to write large things as opposed to small things, mm -hmm. mostly because it takes, like, people are constantly asking me to do stuff for their Kickstarters. And I'm like, well, that's great, except in the amount of time it takes me to research and do all the thought and outlining and, and coming up with ideas for something. And then I'm going to write a 5,000 word piece. I would probably do the same amount of research or nearly for it for uh, a whole book. So mm -hmm. this doesn't make sense to me to spend that much time on this small piece. Right. Right. I'd much rather spend it on a larger piece where I'm kind of amortizing the research a little bit better. 
makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, time is short. Honestly, I'm 52 years old now. So I, at this point, I'm like, you know, it's it's not like I'm going to quit anytime soon, but I could say there's probably, I could probably start counting. There's probably fewer books in my future than there have been in my past. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that means I, I got to think about how I'm spending my time and what I'm choosing to do with it. Right. Right. Yeah. And the, that Dungeonology book uh, is great. I, I bought it for myself. And then my, my son, who's six, loves it. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so he reads that and we bought him pretty much all the other ology books as well as those, uh, the new D&D, uh, what are they, the Young Adventures. Oh, yeah, Jim's up stuff. Too. Uh, Jim yeah, and his yeah, wife those are great. and uh, the artists they have worked with are fantastic people. And Jim does a great job. He's just so, so much fun in so many ways. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for my son to um to pick up reading a little bit more so we can start doing those those endless quest books too. Yeah, and that's something again that wizards, you know, they try to do that themselves back in the old days and nowadays they just don't do it all, right? Uh, right. I actually created the Secret of the Spirit Keeper, the whole Knights of the Silver Dragon series that they did, uh, which were these chapter books or middle grade books uh that came out back in like two thousand four to two thousand six or so. And we did fourteen different books. I wrote three of them. Uh, they had a young adult uh, Dragonlance coming out at the same time. And the whole idea mm-hmm. there was to publish novels that would bring kids into the whole thing and then get them into gaming as well. But, yeah. uh, you know, now Wizards doesn't have a novel department at all. They haven't mm-hmm. had one for years. Yeah. The only uh, fiction that's come out for uh, Dungeons and Dragons in the last uh, three years, I think, has been uh, Bob Salvatore's got a series that's coming out through, ah, I forget the publisher, one of the big ones, one of the t- big five publishers, right? Mm-hmm. But the funny mm-hmm. part is if you go look at these and they're continuously is uh, Driss Dorden stories, right? Uh, none of them say Dungeons and Dragons anywhere on the cover. Hmm. They don't say Forgotten uh-huh. They don't say Forgotten Realms. They don't say Dungeons and Dragons. They say, you know, by R.A. Salvatore, a Drist novel. And that's it. Huh. There's no other branding. Interesting. Of it. Yeah, it's really kind of wild. But yeah. then they license out this other stuff to Candlewick and uh, to the, uh, the company that's publishing Jim stuff, which I think is uh, 10 Speed Press or something like that. Uh, which is a division of a larger company. And that's really what they're doing is they're licensing out their uh, customer acquisition in a sense, right? Because mm-hmm. we're out there making sure the kids still know about Dungeons and Dragons and they can <laughs> yeah. move their way up to it. So, <laughs> And it's good fun. I mean, it's nothing, you know, there's nothing like seeing kids' faces light up because they're excited about you know beating up dragons and <laughs> exploring dungeons and doing all sorts of fun stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you, Matt. It has been really great to have you on the show. You know, stepping through this, uh, this product has been illuminating to me. Uh, I always love hearing little stories that come from, uh, from writers. You never, you never know, like, you know, like your, your, the story about, you know, writing it while you're, uh, while you're out in the UP or wherever you were. It's it's always fun. Yeah. Without any electricity at all. That was crazy. I actually, I think (laughs) I just threw out the, the, uh, the, the shoulder carrying case I had for that thing. The thing was huge, right? <laughs> um, it was the a PowerBook 165C with an external battery and a, a fold-down printer, an inkjet printer I could take with me. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I carried that with me everywhere. But nowadays, I mean, everything fits into something that's like, you know, two and a half pounds and it's wired to the internet constantly and it's a lot easier than it used to be. Yeah. Sometimes- nowadays, I go up to the same place and I vacation. I literally set up a tent in the front yard. And I have a, a wireless connection by cell phone, and I can <laughs> sit there and write until uh, my battery runs out, and that's my cue to go swimming. So <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Wonderful. There are worse ways to do vacations. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. Well, thank you again, Matt, for indulging us. Um, I'm also overjoyed to get to hear about some of the, the thoughts behind uh, Mind Lords of the Last Sea, and uh, hopefully give our listeners a chance to think about it in a, a new way. Thank you very much for having me, guys. It was a real pleasure. 
Yeah. So Matt, where can we, where can we find you online? Well, you can go to forbeck.com, F-O-R-B-E-C-K.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at M Forbeck and I'm on Facebook. You just look me up on Forbeck. It's easy enough. So, and I'm on Instagram and everything else too. So Google is your friend. Nice. <laughs> Definitely. And Jesse, where can we find you? Uh, I'm on both Facebook and Twitter as Jesse Heinig. And I also occasionally lurk around the Reddit Dark Sun pages. Very cool. Nice. And for me, you can find me on the Dark Sun Facebook group. Uh, you can find me at arena.athis.org, which is the uh, Burnt World of Athis uh, forums. You can find me on Twitter at Radu76. Uh, and if you want to email me, you can email me at Radu at uh, athis.org. Uh, so for um, uh, for Bonestone and Obsidian, uh, this is Robert Adichie and Jesse Heinig. Thanks again, Matt. Thank you very much, guys. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bonestone and Obsidian is hosted by the Misdirected Mark Network, the media arm of Encoded Designs.